for love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by this same Spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. And we pray to our Blessed Lady, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Mount Carmel, St. Joseph, and St. Teresa. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, may the Lord give you his peace. Okay. Last night, we went through the dark night of the soul, which is includes both of the dark nights, the first one, the dark night of the senses, which is the entrance into the fourth mansion. So we're going to begin with the fourth mansion this morning. But I did want to, the second dark night, of course, dark night of the spirit, that comes in the sixth mansion, okay, um, and, and continues after that. Uh, what I did want to mention, though, <clears throat> in regard to the dark night, I gave you the example of Our Lady having lost the child Jesus for the three days, okay? Uh, his presence abruptly taken away, and she was in great distress seeking the child Jesus, okay? Then finds him, and remember, he begins to, I think, reveal to her his divinity, all right? Remember, we come to know Christ better after we have gone through the dark night. We will see things about him that we never knew before. And then the dark night of the Spirit was Mary at the foot of the cross. Yeah, everything, in the dark night of the Spirit, everything almost is taken away from you. It's sacrificed. Now, I want to use one more example because I think it'll help explain a little bit clearer, and that's the apostles. The apostles experienced the dark night from when Jesus was seized on Holy Thursday night. You have to remember, the apostles, even when Jesus was going on his journey to Jerusalem, three times, or at least twice on that journey, predicted his, his coming passion and death and resurrection. Okay, remember that? He, he told them the Son of Man will be handed over to the Jewish authorities, who will hand them over to the Romans, he'll be crucified, put to death, and rise on the third day. What was the reaction of the apostles? Completely over their head. Forget about it. After the, the second time that he made the prediction, the first time he made the prediction was when Peter tried to talk him out of it. Remember that? Let, the, don't talk like this. Let nothing happen to you. You know, And that's when he said, get behind me, Satan. Okay? You think the thoughts of men and not of God. The second time our Lord, you know, he's, he predicts the passion. And what happens? Um, the apostles are afterward are walking behind him. He's walking ahead, and they are safely out of earshot because they know he shouldn't hear this conversation. And remember, they get into a house, and Jesus turns around, and he asks 12 grown men, what were you talking about on the road? And you had the first grand silence, you know, remember? They didn't answer him because they were embarrassed they were arguing about who was the most important among them. Hmm? Could you imagine that? Huh? Arguing who's most important. Were they concerned about the death of Christ? He had just told them, no, no, forget about it. We're right over their head. They were interested in an earthly, uh, earthly uh, reign that Christ would have. Huh? The third time, Jesus predicted, who comes forward? Mrs. Zebedee with her two sons. I don't think James and John knew what was happening. She took the, you know, James, come here. Mom, where are we going? Just come with me. John, come here. Mom, what are we going to do? She takes him to Jesus, and what does she say? Jesus, I just have a small favor to ask of you. Make sure that my son James here is on your right hand in the kingdom, and my son John is on the left. That's all I want. The first place is for my sons. Now, St. Augustine said that's no fault for a mother because a mother always wants what's best for her children. He had a mother like that too, right, St. Monica? Okay. Were they concerned? And then remember the other apostles became indignant because they wanted the first places. Hmm? They figured this is a power play. Were they concerned about the death of Christ, his resurrection? Not at all. 
They were interested in an earthly kingdom. Remember how I told you that one of the reasons for the dark night of the senses is to shatter our false images of great holiness and, you know, importance and so on. We have a lot of illusions. And that has to be destroyed. And those illusions about an earthly kingdom were destroyed at 3 o'clock on Good Friday afternoon when the heart of Christ was pierced and he died. There was no more hope of an earthly kingdom. Do you see that? It had to be put to death. All those illusions had to be destroyed or they couldn't go further. What about Peter? At the Last Supper, Jesus said, you know, he quoted the prophet, I think prophet Zephaniah, no, Zechariah, who said, you will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And he said, tonight that will be, take place. He said, you will all leave me. And what does Peter do? He pulls out the sword. Lord, I am ready to die for you. Oh, yeah? Before the rooster crows tonight, you will three times deny you even know me. And, years la- and, and a couple of hours later, he said to that servant girl who kept following him, huh? And he said, I don't know the man. And Jesus turned around, remember, looked at him. And he went out and he wept bitterly. See, pride. There was a pride Peter was thinking, I can do it by myself. I'm ready to die for you. He didn't know how weak he was. And see, that's why we need to go through this dark night, to realize how weak we are without God's grace. And it was very important. But what happens after the, resurrec- after the death and resurrection of Jesus? He appears to them on Easter night, and what was their reaction? The gospel says they were incredulous for sheer joy. They couldn't believe it. They had to get him to eat a piece of fish to prove he was really him. <laughs> he shows him his hands and his side. Poor Thomas wasn't there. That's what happens. You miss a meeting and, you know, important things happen. And he wouldn't believe it until he put his finger in the place of the nails and Jesus' hands and his hand into Jesus' side. He wouldn't believe it. But, but when they did, they were incredulous for sheer joy. Remember I told you when you go through this dark night, you will come to know Christ as you never knew him before. And, um, and what about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? They were completely depressed, weren't they? They're talking about what happened, you know, and, and Jesus walks along, makes believe he doesn't know what's going on. What are you guys talking about here? Well, you're the only stranger here in Jerusalem? Well, tell me, what happened? And they're talking about, well, we thought he was the one who was going to drive out the Romans and set up the, you know, the kingdom as it had been under David and Solomon and everything, you know. And Jesus said, oh, how slow you are to, to believe the scriptures. And remember, he began to talk about the scriptures to them, you know, but all the scriptures that referred to him. Did not the Christ have to first suffer before he could enter his glory? And what happened? What was the reaction of those men? Remember, Jesus may believe he was going on, and they said, oh, come and stay with us. It's, it's evening. And as he was at that meal, remember, he took the bread and he broke it as he did at the Last Supper. And their eyes were opened. They recognized him in the breaking of the bread. And what did they say to one another? Were not our hearts burning inside us as he spoke to us on the road, as he interpreted the scriptures? Our hearts were burning inside us. See, you see Jesus in a different way than you've never seen him before. And that's a fruit of the dark night. See, these illusions have to go, and they will be destroyed, many of them, in that dark night. Okay, because you realize, I can't do anything. Peter, do you know that when Peter, if you go back to that little conversation Jesus had, uh, when he said to Peter, remember three times, he he didn't call him Peter. Because he had denied being Jesus' disciple. That name was given to him because he had proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, he called him Simon, son of John. Do you love me? Three times, remember? Because he had denied three times, Jesus wanted to give him three chances to reaffirm his discipleship. And remember, in the English, we have only one word for love. But in the Greek, okay, when Jesus asks him the first two times, do you love me? The Greek translation was the the, the word for love, agape, which is a total, complete, sacrificing love. He didn't answer that. 
He didn't answer that way. He answered with the word philia, which is a less total giving love, more of a love of friendship. He was afraid to say, I have that total, complete giving love for you. He wouldn't say that. And the third time Jesus asked him, Jesus used the idea of philia, a lesser love. And he said, yes, that's the love I have for you. Okay? He was afraid because he had boasted that he was ready to die for Jesus. Humility. Humility, that's why St. Teresa said, humility is the key. Because if we're proud, you're not going to go too far unless Jesus takes that pride away. Okay? He could, you know, uh, I, I think I mentioned to you that uh, Dominican great uh, spiritual writer, Garrigou Lagrange, said, sometimes a fall into sin can actually lead a person further in the spiritual. Not that we're condoning sin or telling people to go out and commit sin. No, no, no. But a sin out of weakness. You know, when you repent of it, as Peter did, he wept bitterly. Remember I told you, every time he heard the rooster crow, the tradition was he would weep bitterly. He would remember what he had done, okay? And, and so Garigou Legrand says, sometimes the repentance over a sin can actually lead you further to love God. You realize his mercy. You realize what you have done against his love. And, uh, and so that will draw you to love him more. Okay, now let's get into the fourth mansion, okay? This is the beginning of, remember, contemplative prayer or mystical prayer, which is more passive now because the Holy Spirit takes a greater part role in leading you, and you do become somewhat aware of him. You don't see visions. You can't see the Holy Spirit. You can't feel the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have any. He's a spirit, okay? You can feel consolation that he can cause and create in your heart. But now, there are different forms of prayer that come. The first one in, in, the, in the fourth mansion, uh, which is called the, the prayer of, um, uh, it's, it's the uh, prayer of quiet, okay, or the, the, the fourth mansion, all right? There's the first form of prayer I mentioned last night. It's called infused recollection. See, in, in other words, it's a type of mystical prayer characterized by the union of our intellect with God, okay, and through the inner light of the Holy Spirit. Remember I tell you, it's now that the Holy Spirit will take a more active role in your spiritual life. You'll be more conscious of him. He's always, he's always working or he couldn't get anywhere, you know, without his help. But now through the gifts that I mentioned, those sanctifying gifts, he begins to infuse a light into your mind to understand him, to see Christ differently so that you will deepen your love, your discipleship for him, okay? But what happens is your mind becomes bound up. Remember we said one of the signs of the dark night is that you can't meditate. See, the Holy Spirit will bind up your mind like that. You can't meditate the way you used to, but he will infuse a light into your mind, so to speak. And the result is you penetrate divine truths, you know, by the light of the Holy Spirit, okay? All of a sudden, you begin to be aware. Just as those apostles saw Christ, they were incredulous for sheer joy. Just as those two disciples on the road to Emmaus were not our hearts burning inside us as he spoke to us about the Scriptures. Now, what happens is some of the things that go along with this, I can't go into a whole lot of detail on these, but some of the things, the person begins to experience a very lively sense of the supernatural, okay? Not, not immediately, okay? Because, in fact, because the person is not aware of what's actually happening, they miss this, this working of the Holy Spirit. They don't realize what's going on. After a while, they catch on, all right? But they will have a more lively sense of the presence of God in the soul, all right? Um, they're filled with a delightful admiration of joy and, and gladness, see? Discovering so many marvels of God's love and goodness and beauty. See, just like those disciples, you know, were not our hearts burning inside us. <laughs> um, there's a certain silence that comes into the soul, you know, because the presence of God 
Now it's, it's seen more clearly, and therefore there's a greater sense of awe, reverence, in the sense of God's presence, okay? And the person begins to, to see a little bit of that. And uh, they have the light, again, of the Holy Spirit regarding the Lord and many of the mysteries of our faith. So that's the first gift of prayer in the fourth mansion, is this prayer of, of passive recollection. See, in order to prepare yourself, I was mentioning it last night, to prepare yourself for these further gifts, it's important to accustom yourself to be aware of God's presence. Hmm? And uh, that's active recollection. She even talks about a prayer of simplicity or even a prayer called the prayer of simple gaze where, you know, you just kind of aware of God's presence in your soul and you just want to be silent. It's nonverbal communication. It's just an awareness, okay? That can come into the soul even in the, the third mansion. And that can help prepare the soul. However, to enter the fourth mansion is a completely distinct gift of God. You can't bring it on, all right? You can only dispose yourself to want to be more deeply united with God, okay? A second form of prayer happens in that fourth mansion, and that's called the prayer of quiet, all right? In this, the Holy Spirit now will captivate your will. So your mind is already bound up and is being supplied with light through the Holy Spirit, the light of truth. However, now the will is bound up, okay? And so it can't make those acts of love as you used to make them. But there is a greater intensity of uh, not consolation. There's not, a, not, not the same consolation. They're called, St. Teresa calls them spiritual delights. They're of a much higher level. Okay, for example, I use an example like this. You ever see the little kids' cartoons on Saturday? I don't know if they still have them on Saturday morning. There's a heckle and a jekyll and a mighty mouse and all that. And a road runner. You can see. You can see. I watched a few cartoons when I was young. Okay, and um, and you know, a lot of cartoons for kids are always built up. Father Benedict used to say that. You know, dramatic things. You know, uh, is uh, is Popeye going to get that can of spinach in time? <laughs> to punch Bluto and, you know, knock him out, uh, you know, and so it's, it's all that little tension, and kids get all excited. It's very emotional. See, that's like, that's like the consolation, okay? It's more emotional. But imagine, compare that to an adult watching a very dramatic movie, which in the real suspense and everything, and right at the end, you know, and, and you get such a, a sense of, um, wow, that was terrific, you know, uh, less emotional, but very profound, see? And that's what spiritual delights are. They're more profound experiences of God, okay? And, um, and so in the prayer of quiet now, the soul is, uh, uh, you know, it begins to give the soul the actual possession and enjoyment of God as the sovereign good. Remember, the will seeks what is good, okay? The mind seeks what is true. And God is infinite truth, and God is infinite goodness. And that's why in heaven, when you see God in the beatific vision, you are no longer free to love him. You must love him because you were made for him. Okay? You want to love him because that's the fulfillment of what you were made for. Your mind was made for truth. Your heart was made for love, goodness. Okay? And once you see God, you have that. Well, in the prayer of quiet, you actually begin to experience a joy in, um, in loving God. See, what's happening now, and it's going to become more intense with the prayer, the next mansion, and God's presence in the soul now is much more profound. It's a stronger presence, okay? Not like, you know, before the dark night, okay? Not that you didn't love God, in the, you know, those mansions. You had to love God or you couldn't grow. But now... God's presence will, will uh, make a deeper impact on your soul, okay, on you. She talks about 
Things like the sleep of the faculties. In other words, they're being bound up. Your mind is bound up by the prayer of passive recollection. Your, your, your will is bound up. You can't make those acts of love the way you want. You know what's happening? You're going to be yearning for God with your whole being. See, and that's where your love is being expressed. Now, to St. Augustine used to stress the idea of desire for God, to have great desires for God. Um, so to desire God with all your heart. And there's a certain sweetness and delight that comes from this that you had not known before. Again, you can't bring it on. She even talks about divine inebriation. You know what inebriation means, getting drunk. She speaks about a divine inebriation, which you don't need any liquor to get this one. You just need the Holy Spirit. It's an intense joy and delight that's produced, you know, um, within the soul by God's beauty. Huh? Again, like those disciples, when not our hearts burning inside us. Um, and sometimes it, it, it can lead to external signs that it almost seem a little foolish or, you know, bodily movements, jumping and like singing and sp spontaneous singing. And uh, even St. Francis, you know, one time he picked up two sticks and made believe he was playing the violin with them. Hmm? Um, it, that's a touch of God, uh, which brings with it a great joy. It's called a divine inebriation, okay? Uh, we can't bring this prayer on ourselves. It must be given, okay? But we cooperate with, um, with God's grace. Let's move on to the next level of prayer, the next mansion. Uh, now, the, the going from the third mansion to the fourth mansion is a big move. Because you're going from active prayer to this passive prayer, okay? Where the Holy Spirit is operating more fully. Now, you're going from rowing the boat, you put the sail up. But to go from the fourth mansion to the fifth mansion is even a bigger jump. Uh, many souls, St. Teresa says, lay people as well as clergy and religious will reach the fourth mansion. Perhaps some of you, maybe have, we spoke about the dark night last night. You might have said, I think I went through something like that. I, uh, I remember when I was a novice, my novice master, he read out of a book, uh, but I was glad he did because some of the things he said about this dark night and all helped me in my own life. So, you know, to become aware of that passive prayer and so on. Um, uh, but what happens is in the, the, the prayer of union, the impact of God's presence in the soul is so much more powerful. Okay? In fact, the last three mansions, fifth, sixth, and seventh, are all prayer of union. The fifth mansion is called the prayer of simple union. The sixth mansion is the prayer of ecstatic union, ecstasy. Okay? And the prayer, the seventh mansion is the prayer of the transforming union, which unites God with the soul in a most intense way. Okay? So we're talking here about the prayer of simple union in the fifth mansion. What is this? It's a, a level of infused contemplation in which all of the internal faculties of the soul are captivated by God. They're suspended you know, we saw that God already captivated our mind through the prayer of passive recollection. Then we said he, he captivates our will through the prayer of quiet. Now, in the fifth mansion, he will captivate your faculties of um, the, your, your memory and imagination. And once they are captivated... One of, the, one of the signs of a person in this fifth mansion, they don't get any distractions. Because your distractions come from either your memory or your imagination. You remember things while you're praying and things come back to your mind. Or your imagination, like a TV screen, is going wild, you know, different channels bringing in. Huh? That becomes captivated. And so this prayer of union is um, a very profound and beautiful prayer. Okay. Um, only the external senses are still not yet captivated. Okay. Now, what is the nature of this prayer of union? We have to say something about it. Uh, 
Okay, you know, Saint Teresa says that not too too many reach this level of prayer. Why? Because it takes a great generosity, um, faithfulness with God. Those two words are very important. Be be very generous. Be very faithful. Okay, um, and um, and so to cooperate with the grace of God, and of course humility. God raises up the humble. So what's this prayer? What is, what is this prayer of union like? It's a great, there's a great intensity to it, okay? It's even far beyond the experience of the, thir- of the fourth mansion, which itself was beautiful, as we saw, that infused recollection and the prayer of quiet. Here, in this prayer of union, remember I said the impact of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit is so powerful that the body itself begins to come under the influence of God working in the soul. In other words, the presence of God in the soul is so powerful, it's actually in some way affecting the body. Okay, and that's why these, the memory and the imagination get bound up. Okay, um, the external senses are not yet bound up, but they sometimes feel helpless when a person is praying in this prayer. It is a very beautiful prayer, by the way. The soul experiences now divine realities with such an intensity that it could possibly fall into an ecstasy, okay? At the beginning, this absorption of the faculties in God lasts a short time. Could be anywhere 15 minutes. Time goes by quickly, you know, because why? You're so absorbed into God. Um, could be half an hour. As the intensity increases, it could be prolonged, even for several hours. Now, this is what St. Teresa says about this prayer. She said, God impresses himself upon the interior of the soul in such a way that when the soul is restored to full awareness, in other words, when that prayer ends and a person comes back kind of to themselves, hmm, it cannot possibly doubt that God has been in it, in the soul, and that the soul has been in God. So there's no doubt of how powerful the presence of God is in this soul at this prayer of quiet. Okay? Um, some of the, the signs that a person reaches this is the absence of distractions. Remember I told you the memory and the and the uh, imagination are bound up, and that's where your distractions come from. Another thing is this, what I just read here from St. Teresa, a certitude of being united with God. When that prayer ends, there's no doubt. She said the devil cannot reach or touch the soul at that level. Can't do it. So he can't do anything fake to try to substitute something fake for something real. You can't do it because that, soul, that prayer is beyond him, okay? Um, he can't falsify it. St. Teresa says it believes that the devil doesn't even know the existence of this secret level of prayer, okay? It's so intimate with God. By the way, she also says that at this point... Um, The, she says that the soul becomes Martha and Mary together. Okay? You remember the story of Martha and Mary? Huh? Poor Martha. She must have had some Italian blood making that big meal, you know, 15-course <laughs> meal. And what, what's her sister Mary doing just sitting there at the feet of Jesus? And she's annoyed. Now, it was bad enough that she made this big meal, you know. Uh, but what was worse is she got annoyed at her sister and complained about it, you know. Um, so we always see Martha and Mary as separate, but St. Teresa says at this prayer, okay, she said the soul enjoys the repose of Mary, okay, uh, and, um, but she said the intellect and memory are so free that they can attend to other matters and be active like Martha. And so, you know, and she says here, so that it, it is, as it were, occupied in both the active and contemplative life, performing works of charity and duties of its state in life, and reading uh, uh, all those souls in this state 
are not masters of themselves, okay? So they can actually um, even read uh, different things while they're in this state of prayer, okay? So they active and passive together. Um, all right, I better continue on. Let's, uh, some of the, 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 I gave you some of the signs of the prayer of union, the absence of distractions, the certitude, the certainty of being in God when that ends, no doubt. And finally, an absence of weariness and boredom, okay? Because the soul is so absorbed in God, it never, it never um, wearies of the union with God, okay? Because it's filled with this ineffable light, which brings great joy and great um, love for God. Okay. What are some of the effects of this prayer of union? First of all, the soul is greatly anxious to praise God. Okay. See, that's brought on by the Holy Spirit's working. He's inspiring. He's stirring this uh, in that soul at that level through the, again, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. See, it has, it has an intense, it's willing to suffer. Even to suffer, she said, a thousand deaths. Okay, it has an intense longing to suffer great trials. Now, that's something that doesn't come naturally, does it? In fact, if anything, we have an aversion to suffer great trials. Remember, St. Teresa had a motto. She said, to suffer or to die. And you say, well, how could you reach this? Well, it's the Holy Spirit produces that in the soul. There's so much love for God the way the soul knows it can show that love for God is I've got to carry the cross with Jesus. I want to share it. You know, Padre Pio, you know, he suffered a great deal. Huh? And someone said to him one day, Padre Pio, why don't you tell God to take some of your sufferings away? You suffer so much. He says, don't take my sufferings away. He said, Jesus wants my suffering. He said, Jesus needs my suffering. In other words, for the salvation of souls. I just heard a story recently where a man went to Padre Pio. He was suffering some kind of pain. And, and the man had a, like a little vision. And he saw a whole group of people. And he said to Padre Pio, I guess it was in a dream or whatever it was. And he said to Padre Pio, Padre Pio, who are all these people? He says, these are all the people that you will save if you bear your cross patiently. He said, okay, don't take my cross away from me. You never know. If you bear the cross with Jesus, how many souls will be saved? Okay. Remember the Blessed Mother at Fatima, she said to the children, pray, pray a great deal, make many sacrifices, she said, because many souls are lost from God. There is no one to pray and sacrifice for them. So that's where the cross comes in. Again, you can't become a real friend of Jesus without being a friend of the cross in some way. Now, that doesn't mean you were going to pray for more intense sufferings. Just pray to bear the sufferings that come along every day. If God wants to send you more, he'll take care of that, okay? But just do the best with the cross you got. And, you know, patience, love, and offer it for souls. Because we, our suffering is co-redemptive. If you got the book, Walk Humbly with God, I talk about all the kinds of suffering in there. Co-redemptive suffering is part of our call as Christians. We are asked by Jesus to carry the cross, our sufferings, and our prayers to join with him in the work of the salvation of the world. He could have done it all by himself, but he chose to be dependent on us. Okay, I always use the example about the, when Jesus had to feed the 5,000 men, not counting the women and the children. And they had that little boy there with the five loaves of bread, two fish. Everybody else was out of food. This little kid, I, I always tell people I picture him as chubby because, you know, his mom made him a big lunch. He was, he was set to go to a whole distance, right? Five loaves of bread, everybody else was out of food. Um, and and St. Andrew brought that little boy to, to Jesus, and he said, but what good is five loaves of bread? we got 5,000 people. Just give it to Jesus. See what he'll do with it. So that's why your sufferings, your prayers, you may think, well, that's, what's this going to do? What's a rosary going to do to save the world? Hmm? Just give it to the Blessed Mother. You'll see what she'll do. Okay? Prayer, suffering, it's part of our, our call to be with Jesus. But so will the delights and joys come. Okay? 
So there's an intense longing to suffer trials. It experiences vehement desires for penance and even solitude. Another sign of this uh, effect of this prayer of union, it wishes all souls would know God. Okay? See, here's where the salvation of souls starts to grow intensely in the soul. St. Francis used to say, nothing should take precedence to the work, the salvation of souls for which Christ suffered and died. Okay? So the soul becomes very saddened when it sees that God is offended. See? Why? Because they love God so much. They don't want God to be offended. And so they're saddened to see when people offend them. They have a great desire then for the salvation of souls. Okay? The soul is dissatisfied with all things on earth. Nothing can fully satisfy it. Not that we, we don't want to disdain the good things God has made. But they no longer satisfy the heart. Only Jesus can do that. Okay? They've tasted at this point, and they long for more. It is grieved to having to be concerned with many worldly things, huh? and um, bound up with uh, all kinds of relationship with people and so on, some of them with worldly possessions, because they're not free to focus on the Lord, all right? Let's move on to the sixth mansion, okay? Um, the sixth mansion is the beginning of the unitive way. Okay, I told you last night, this is the territory, the sixth and seventh mansion is the territory of canonizable saints. This is how far they get. All right. Um, it's also called the conforming union. All right. And it will end in a, an experience for the soul called the spiritual espousal. Spiritual espousal. Now, the prayer of ecstatic union Okay, besides the, um, the, the external senses now will be captivated. So you remember, we, we looked at the, the mind was captivated by the prayer of passive um, recollection. The, the heart was captivated by the prayer of quiet. That's in the fourth mansion. In the fifth mansion, we just saw the memory and imagination are captivated, okay, by the Holy Spirit um, in this fifth mansion. The sixth mansion, now the external senses, you're seeing, you're hearing, okay, will be bound up and um, uh, in when you experience this ecstatic prayer. Now, you know, an ecstasy, a lot of people think that ecstasy always means levitation. You remember St. Joseph Cupertino? You would say the name of our Lord and the Blessed Mother around him and up he went. You know, uh, <laughs> they tell the story that they had to get across onto this, the, you know, the, the roof of the church. And they put it in his arms and they must have said the name of our Lord, the Blessed Mother. And up he went with the cross, you know. The, the, who needs a crane? We got St. <laughs> Joseph Cupertino. Okay. So to go into ecstasy does not necessarily mean levita the, to levitate. They do know Padre Pio levitated. I've met, I've met on two occasions people who told me that they were at Mass or they met people who were at Mass with Padre Pio. And at one point in the Mass, he was lifted about a foot off the ground and remained like that for about five minutes. That's ecstasy and levitation. Levitation is rising up. But not all ecstasy in, uh, requires levitation. Ecstasy simply means that your senses are cut off from everything around you. Now, if you're in a perfect ecstasy, the only one who can contact you in that would be your superior or someone who has authority over you, okay? For example, Padre Pio, when he said Mass, the reason why he took so long to say Mass is he always said Eucharistic Prayer 1, all right? And then, as you know, before the consecration, there's the remembrance of the living, after the consecration, there is the remembrance of the dead. Now, he took about a half hour at both of those commemorations. Because remember, he received a lot of letters. He received, on an estimate, thousands of letters every week. Hold on, I got to just give me. So he, 
Padre Pio would receive thousands of letters, you know, requests for prayers and so on. Even you could send your guardian angel to him with a, any request that you had when he was alive. Now you could just speak to him by prayer, okay? But when he was alive, you sent your guardian angel to him, you know, and, um, and, and sometimes even during mass, the guardian angels would come. And, and so he was remembering all these intentions, and that's what took so long. Then he would remember all the dead. How many, they asked him one day, Padre Pio, do any of the souls in purgatory come to your mass? He says, more people come, come up this mountain, because he was on a mountain there. He said, more people come up this mountain from purgatory than, from, than the living do. And you know, many souls that needed his prayers. There was the famous story about a Capuchin brother. Padre Pio was down in the chapel. He was praying one night, and he sees his brother at the altar, cleaning the altar. He didn't know who the brother was. He said, brother, who are you? He said, well, Padre Pio, I was a novice in this community a hundred years ago. I was a sacristan. I didn't do my job. I'm in purgatory doing my job. Pray for me. I always tell people, do your job. <laughs> you don't want to spend a hundred years in purgatory doing your job. Huh? See, fulfill your responsibilities. And, and so he prayed for him. He never saw him again. But they used to say many of the souls in purgatory who were set free through his prayers would come by the friary and thank him for his prayers. Okay. Always pray for the uh, souls in purgatory. I just recently had, uh, any of you know Susan Tassoni? She I always call her the purgatory lady. She's written about nine or 11 books on purgatory. And um, I, I said she knows more about purgatory than anybody except somebody who's been there. Hmm? Um, I don't know how she could write 11 books, but she's got 11 books. Okay, but we did two shows already and she was gonna come and do another show. She's gonna do purgatory in the writings of St. Faustina. Because St. Faustina went to purgatory also. She saw Our Lady there. She said, Our Lady comes and consoles the souls in purgatory. And they, they call her the star of the sea, which is the, you know, this idea of guiding us over the final part of the journey uh, to be with uh, Jesus. So, uh, so he would take about half hour in the, for the living and for the dead. Now, he was in an ecstasy. And the only way, if the, if the superior was always near him. Nobody ever concelebrated with him. You couldn't concelebrate with him, Bajabia. Okay? The superior would mentally command him. If he saw the people getting restless in the church, he would mentally command Padre Pio to continue with the Mass. And that's the only way he could communicate. You know? You can poke people in an ecstasy. You can pinch them and everything. They won't feel it. Okay? Um, because the senses are blocked off by this presence of God. It's so powerful in this sixth mansion. Okay? So, ecstasy is like a gentle and progressive swooning. You know, there's somebody passing out, swooning out, okay? Which ends in a complete suspension of the senses. They're captivated, okay? They don't function. So the person in ecstasy can't see, can't hear, can't feel anything. Father Solanus Casey, Father Benedict always told when he was a novice, he went to the chapel one night, and he didn't know Father Solanus was kneeling in front of the, the tabernacle with his arms extended. Riveted on the tabernacle. Father Benedict had thrown the light on. He didn't know Father was there. And he said, Father had no idea that I was there. He was completely in an ecstasy. So, very, very important, okay? Um, now, sometimes the person can appear and almost be dead or asleep, all right? Um, usually, though, the face of the person is radiant. They almost seem to be transparent, all right? If the ecstasy is complete, it's useless to call the person or shake them, you know, you can't use any natural means. The only thing that can be done is uh, someone who has authority can command that person. Otherwise, you have to wait until the ecstasy ends. Okay? I won't go into false ecstasies where the devil tries to mimic what God does. You know, um, uh, he, he always tries to do 
you know, to mimic what God does. See, uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon is the mercy hour. The devil's hour is 3 o'clock in the morning. Okay? That's his hour. So those people who are involved in the occult will worship him at 3 o'clock in the morning. I've, I've talked to somebody recently who said the police go around and they see these strange things happening in different places. They're people invoking the devil at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know. Uh, just as we have by location, the, the devil can mimic that gift we called astral projection, okay? And, um, and so, uh, so the devil would, you know, certainly, um, you know, try to lead us away from loving God, okay? So ecstatic union. Now, how long is a person in the ecstatic union? Um, if, again, by the time you reach that level, you're no longer attracted to the world, and you're intensely in love with God, so you probably will move on quickly. However, now, it's in that sixth mansion that you go through that um, dark night of the Spirit. See, the cross. See, this is where it's almost like you see this in the lives of saints where everything they worked for seems to be taken away from them. St. Alphonsus Liguori ended up outside his own order. Because some of his own guy, his own men, you know, plotted against him, and he was afraid to bring it to the authorities in Rome because he was afraid they would suppress the redemptorists. So they removed him and made him a bishop. He was made the bishop of a little diocese called Santa Agatha dei Goti, Saint Agatha of the Goats. Doesn't that sound like an impressive diocese? <laughs> Talk about putting somebody on the shelf. Huh? Santa Agatha de Goti would sound just like that place. But he never, he never complained because he was afraid his order would be suppressed. So, you know, look at the, I know another uh, nun, foundress of an order. She was expelled from her own order. Look at what happened to the St. James Ugon, the little sisters of the poor. Please pray for them because this court case, you know, is very, very important for the future of the church in America, okay? Uh, they're trying to force them to pay their workers for, uh, pay for abortions and contraception and all of that, okay? Could, it could wipe out the, the, you know, if you don't pay, you know, you know what the fines are? $30,000 a day. Now, who ever heard of such a ridiculous... And that's all, by the way, I think that's an executive decision of the president. It's not through the Congress. It's not that I know of. It's not through the House of Representatives. It's an executive order. That's terrible. Absolutely terrible. Pray very hard, because our freedom as Catholics is riding on the decision of that Supreme Court. Okay? Okay. So now you come to this. Now, one in one of those ecstasies, okay, Jesus tells the soul he will wed the soul to himself. Okay, that's called the betrothal, all right? And um, the, the soul is so overwhelmed with joy that it almost dies. Then you come into the seventh mansion. This is as far as we know you can go in this life. The only thing beyond it that we know of is the beatific vision in heaven, okay? What is this prayer called? This is the prayer of the transforming union or the mystical marriage, all right? Um, so this is the final union of the soul with God. The soul is almost deified. It almost becomes so one with God that it almost like it becomes God. It's the highest degree of perfection we know that's attainable in this world. It's a prelude to the beatific vision in heaven. See, I, I, what I think of when I think of this, this journey that St. Teresa has described for us, um, I think this is the work of purgatory. If you haven't done this basic work in your life here on earth, you have to do something of this in, in purgatory. Now, uh, supposing a person doesn't live long enough to get to the seventh mansion, well, but as long as you have faithfully fulfilled all those mansions, God could take you straight into heaven. 
you know, if your love is, is complete. But this is what I think the work of purgatory is, to reach this kind of level of love before you can go into the presence of God. You would not want to be in the presence of God if you had the slightest stain of sin on your soul. Remember, a soul in purgatory suffers, by the way, not punishment. It's not punishment. It's purification. Okay? And that purification, Susan told me, Susan Sassoni, the purgatory lady, she said that suffering, that fire of purgatory, is from the desire of the soul to be with God. It longs to be with God. Remember I told you when you die, your soul will have this immense longing for God. He's the magnet. We're the piece of metal. When you die and the body is re the soul is removed from the body, your soul is going to want to go to God. And it's an immense hungering for God. And that's the great suffering of purgatory, is the longing to be with God. But they have the joy of knowing they will be there. Okay? Father Benedict used to say they're the hap second happiest group of people. <laughs> he always used to say, I can't wait to get to purgatory. And, you know, uh, at the Mass, I said, uh, let's, let's disappoint Father Benedict. Let's pray that he doesn't go to purgatory, but he goes straight to heaven. Okay? Let's pray for that. Okay? So, um, so the soul would not want to go into the presence of God with even the slightest stain of sin. Okay? Or attachment to sin. That's why someone said if we didn't have purgatory, we'd have to create it. Because we can't go into the sight of God, his infinite holiness, with even the slightest attachment to sin in our heart, you know? And uh, that's important. If you ever read the life of, you ever read the writings of St. Catherine of Siena, you know, she pleaded with God the Father to take a soul out of heaven and bring it to, a soul out of hell and bring it to heaven. The soul in hell pleaded with God the Father not to do that. It would have suffered more because of his sins. Remember, for a soul to get to hell has to reject God at the end. It has to reject the call to mercy. It would have been, knowing it had rejected God's love and being in an infinite holiness, it would have suffered more than suffering in hell. That's what St. Catherine tells us. Okay. Now, what happens in this state is that there is a total transformation of the soul into Christ, all right? Here, in, in, in God and the soul give themselves completely to each other with such a consummation of divine love so that the soul is made almost divine, hmm? almost, and participates in God's life, you know, as much as possible in this world. Okay, that's what this transforming union, mystical marriage is all about. Okay, a total tra transformation. Okay, they use these examples. Transformation like a piece of iron or a log in a fire. Put the log in the fire. You know, if you ever see that in the winter, you put your, maybe a log in a fireplace, and that log is on fire. You can hardly tell the difference between the log and the fire, right? Because the log is completely saturated with the fire. You'd have to throw a bucket of water on the log and put out the fire. Then you'll see the log. But when the log is consumed with the fire, that's like God filling the soul. I had a teacher of philosophy. You know what a pantheist is? It's somebody who believes everything is God. Okay? And this friar said, Christians are not pantheists. But we're pretty close to it because of this union with God. Okay? That God completely saturates the soul with his beauty, his goodness, his love. What, what more could we want? That's our happiness. And people think that heaven is dull. I remember a young man. He said, I don't want to go to heaven. That's dull. I want to go to hell. It's exciting. Oh, yeah. I would tell him to read St. Uh, Faustina's visit to hell. That'll change his mind. If he has a mind to think like that. Okay, so the, the soul begins to take on certain characteristics of God. See, it began in baptism. We received sanctifying grace. But that grace grew. 
See, if a soul is baptized and a child dies immediately after baptism, it goes straight to heaven. But it hasn't developed to its fullness. It's as holy as it can be. It's a, a little glass of water, but fully, a glass that's full. When you got a big glass that's full, okay, everyone is happy. Um, another, secondly, so the transformation into Christ. Secondly, there's a mutual surrender between God and the soul. This is a consequence of that transformation. See, like two spouses, perfect communication of one to another. All right. There's an indissoluble mutual surrender and acceptance that goes on between God and the soul. And that's why, you know, we, we talked yesterday night about Jose, the, uh, the, what do you call it? The song, the song of songs. Huh? And so there is this beauty between God and, and the soul. St. Paul says that the love, marriage is a symbol of the love of Christ and the church. The bridegroom and the bride. Hmm? Um, now, Saint Saint Teresa and Saint um, Saint Catherine of Siena, she describes her mystical marriage. She said that um, the Blessed Mother came with Christ. Saint Dominic was there. She was a Dominican tertiary, like um, she. Uh, she said Saint Peter and Saint Paul were there. Um, King David was there, by the way, with a harp. Italian wedding, you have to have music, right? The tarantella. What kind of a wedding could you have for an Italian? If you're Italian, you can't have a wedding reception without the tarantella, right? You've got to have somebody. So King David was playing a harp and <laughs> music. And so many saints were there. And the Blessed Mother took the hand of St. Catherine and put it in the hand of Jesus and said to Jesus, asked him to to wed Catherine to himself forever. He said, I wed you to myself in, uh, in uh, justice or something in love, okay? The nation of the beloved, I mean the soul into the beloved who is Christ. There's a mutual surrender between Christ and the soul. And finally, there's a permanent union of love, okay? And... Um, now, on earth, that can end at times if the soul is not faithful. You know, in fact, St. Catherine, St. Teresa, they had a ring on their finger, wedding ring. And they alone could see it. And if they were not faithful, that ring would disappear for a while. And then when they were faithful, you know, now you've got to be pretty faithful to reach that level, okay? So, but that's what God has in store for us. When St. Teresa of Avila wrote the... the interior castle, she, she said to the nuns, she said, you may not reach these levels, okay? But I want you to know what God has prepared for you. It's beautiful. Remember St. Paul said, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of men what things God has prepared for those who love him. And this is part of it, even on earth. What's the final little thing here? Okay. By the way, St. John of the Cross said between the sixth and seventh mansion, there's an open door. So if you reach the sixth mansion, you're almost sure to reach the seventh mansion. What are some of the effects? And we'll end with this. Number one, complete forgetfulness of self. Remember when we talked about St. Bernard and he talked about spousal love? I love myself only for God's sake. That's complete self-forgetfulness. Okay. You're so focused on loving God, you forget about yourself. Secondly, there's a great desire to suffer because that's the proof of the love for the beloved. Thirdly, there's delight in persecution. Okay. Fourthly, a great desire to serve God through his, our brothers and sisters. So charity, like a Mother Teresa, on fire with charity. Fifth, detachment from everything created. And sixth, an absence of ecstasies. Why? Because uh, spiritual writers say ecstasy happens because the body is weak. And once you reach the transforming union or the mystical marriage, uh, the strength of the soul is restored to its completeness and they do not suffer any more um, ecstasies. Okay? So that's the journey of the mansions. I hope it's been helpful to you. Okay? 
And just to give you a little idea of what it's like and what God has prepared for you and me if we love him faithfully, okay? So always persevere. Ask Our Lady for the grace of perseverance to love her son. She wants to bring you and me to her son so he can put that, that ring, hmm? so he can make us, unite us spiritually to himself. May Jesus and his Holy Mother and St. Teresa bless each and every one of you. Thank you.